0: Delighted to be here with you. Been uh, doing a lot of traveling and finally found our way into this port, so we're delighted to be here. Uh, We're going to look at a very familiar portion this evening, Uh, a portion that... left off, huh? OK. A portion that uh, many of uh, the children can quote out of the word of God, but a portion, I'm afraid, or the message that is given in this portion is not followed as much as it ought to be among us, and it's to our shame. Turn with me, if you would, to the, to the last chapter of the book of Matthew. The last chapter of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, we'll begin reading with verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, or go ye therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Amen. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his most precious word. We uh, speak these words very often without really forethought of their meaning. Uh, Go therefore, the address of uh, of going go make disciples of all nations and I thought is well I'm not a missionary the Lord hasn't called me to that so obviously this has nothing to do with me but in fact the go is a command to each and every one of us every single one of us as we'll see in a Moment. I picked out three words, three specific words in this portion, and I'm going to try and work around these words to convey the um, the individual aspects of what that word means, and then kind of put them together. The first word is of course go, go ye. The second is uh, disciple. To disciple make disciples. And the third is to teach, teaching. Now if we look at these words, go ye therefore is the ingathering that we're to do. Now these 11 men that that came to Galilee, remember that, uh, what is it, in the 27th chapter, the Lord having completed the or well, having instituted the Lord's Supper, on the way up to Gethsemane, it seems, that he's speaking to his disciples, and he brings out this issue, after the resurrection, I want to meet you in Galilee. Now, obviously, there's a mountain in Galilee, we, we don't have, we're not privy to where in Galilee uh, that mount might be, but, uh, but they were, he, he conveyed that to them. The two Marys came after the resur- after uh, the resurrection. They came, and there's an angel there, and what is it in, actually in uh, the 28th chapter here? And he declares, well, he's not here, but he's going to be in Galilee just as he promised you. And then the Lord is met by these two Marys, and again he says to them in the 10th verse of, of chapter twenty. 8 of Matthew, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And so now there are 11 of them, obviously, and they come to Galilee, and they meet with the Lord, and these are the last words that are recorded in the book of Matthew, and also in the 16th chapter of, of Mark, that last parallel, that paralleling portion in, in Mark. And so these, have some, this, these words have some significant meaning. And it's addressed to these representatives of the church, these 11, they're representatives of the church, corporately. But it also applies to each one of us individually. Go ye, the commission, go. The purpose, to make disciples. As I mentioned, go, who's to go? Well, all of us are to go. Does it mean all of us are to go, as we read there, to uh, the nations and the world? Well, no. Go? The whole objective is that we're called to minister Christ wherever we're at. Go into the world. Where are you at? Where's your place right now? Are we attempting, then, to make disciples where we're at? So the commission is to go. The purpose is to make disciples. The means, if we looked in in uh, chapter 16 of Mark, we're given the means by which that's accomplished through the gospel, through the gospel. I'm sure you've read through uh, various presentations of the gospel. Um, I remember a number of them, um, and, and I mean no disrespect to some that may approach presenting the gospel in this way. Uh, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's true, but that's not the gospel. God loves you, and all you have to do is accept Him in your heart. It's true, but that's not the gospel. What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15 gives us the gospel in a, in a very definite way, doesn't it? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again, according to the scriptures. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. Why is the burial in there? Well, to do away with such things as Gnostic error, for instance, that say that he merely swooned and uh, and never, never died. When you're in the grave for three days, I think that pretty much speaks of death, doesn't it? And so the Lord defines this. The Spirit of God defines this for us, that Christ died, not simply died, but Christ died for our sins. He was buried and that he rose again. The power of God conveying the approval of the work that was accomplished on the cross of Calvary by the Lord Jesus. I don't believe that there's been, ever been any greater power than the power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's by means of the gospel. The sphere, as I said, is all nations, but in Acts chapter one, what is it, verse eight? We have the picture there where the the gospel was presented where? In Jerusalem first and then Judea and then Samaria and then the world. Wherever you are at, wherever I'm at, that's where there ought to be that interaction of the gospel with others. Some may say, well, you know, I'm closed. I, I, I can't get out. I'm in Western Assembly's home, and I don't get out very much. I'd love, love to be in contact with others to convey the gospel, but I can't. I think perhaps some are here that uh, that are here may remember Mabel Richards. She was a dear sister at the home. And <clears throat> just her hands and her feet were gnarled by rheumatoid arthritis. She sat in a chair basically the whole 24 hours of a day. She slept in that chair. I'd knock on the door on occasion. She says, "Uh, come in. I'd open the door, and there she would be. Beaming smile on her face. Oh, Al, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. prayer, the power behind those that are going forth to convey the gospel. We're all involved in this, dear sisters, dear brothers, every single one of us, in conveying the gospel, not simply to get people into the kingdom, to get people to be saved, but to make disciples to make disciples, and we're to make the disciples. Really, how is it that we can make a disciple? What is a disciple? A follower of someone. We're not looking for them to be followers of us. The Hebrew rabbis, they had followers. They had their own disciples. But our job isn't to have followers of us. We're coming alongside someone to help them as a pupil to come to that transition from learning through us to now being a direct disciple of the Lord Jesus. I believe absolutely that not every Christian is a disciple. Every disciple is a Christian, but not every Christian is a disciple. True follower of the Lord Jesus. So the, the starting block is salvation, the gospel, but that's just simply the beginning of the race. God wants us to be the disciples to have Christ centered in our life completely so that we're conformed more to his image, likeness. And so we have the commission The purpose to make disciples the means by virtue of the gospel. And the results, if we went through that, I wish we had time to really look into this, is that they were scattered. That word scattered, for instance, is not just a scattering as if if, uh, um, there was no uh, control over where it would go. It was like sowing seeds. The Lord was moving people around after they were saved so that the gospel might go forth and disciples might be made throughout the world. And we can thank the Lord for that, can we not? Scattered and expanded and multiplied these kinds of words that are given. An interesting uh, study in that particular, uh, as far as the results of, uh, uh, of presenting the gospel and making disciples. And it ought to be so, Today, um, we were talking this morning about the dying off of uh, assemblies, Nick and I, right? the dying off assemblies. Why is that? This is the one area that we're missing. Dear saints, we have it, the Lord's Supper. What a wonderful and delightful thing that is to be here, to meet with the Lord. We have it as far as truth. We have men that can present the word of God, and we have that. But what about those that are outside these four walls? We have growth, but only by, by reproducing families The young ones becoming older, getting married and bringing in children. What about the folks out there? And I've been in one assembly after another. Older folks, they're holding to the truth. Wonderful, delightful meeting around the person of Christ at the Lord's Supper. But they're dying because there's no new blood in the assembly. And we need to be very careful with that. This happens to be one of the assemblies that is thriving, but there are many that are not, that should be, but are not. And so the work of ingathering we're called to go forth or go out. There's, there's the work of uh, spiritual instruction or enlightenment, teaching, teaching them all things. Look at this. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all things, all things, A-L-L, that I have commanded you. Behavior, I think, is one of those things that ought to be taught in in the address to the women in Titus, for instance. It gives instruction to the older and more mature women to, to teach the, um, the younger women be teachers of good things, of proper behavior. And so there is the issue of teaching behavior, the teaching of the word of God. I picked up a little book on the issue of um, the lack of scriptural knowledge, knowledge of scripture in the church. I'm not saying the assemblies necessarily, but the church as a whole. And the author of this book, I don't remember even the title, let alone the, the author. But the essence of the book was that his concern was that we are in the church almost as ignorant of what the word of God says as the world out there. Hearsay, what someone else says, a position that someone else holds to is presented as fact and truth without ever going and doing the, the reading and the refining and the research in the Word of God for themselves. Short, looking through short little portions of scripture, having an understanding, we enjoy certain aspects. I enjoy certain parts of the Word of God more than perhaps others. I mean, you, you go through some of the lineages of the tongue-twisting old names of Hebrew names in, in the Old Testament. Well, you know, yeah, I, I prefer the Psalms. But there's a great deal of worth out of those portions, and it is the word of God, isn't it? The whole thing, the the whole issue is that we are to know the word of God so that we can pass the word of God on to other men and women. Not only to have it useful for our own lives, but to know it so that we can pass on the faith to others. Know it, not simply in, as I said, picking out those little portions that we may enjoy ourselves, not simply going through the word um, in, a, in a sense uh, of uh, reading a, a section and, and thinking to yourself, well, what really does this mean, and coming up with what you think it means and then going on, but actually taking the time to divide the word of God as it ought to be, rightly divide the word of God. Look at the structure of the word of God. There is one purpose that God has in the word of God above anything else. It is conveyed from the first chapter of the book of Genesis and it closes in the last chapter of the book of Revelation. One thin red line in every book of the Bible is joined to the other book. No book stands by itself as if it has a different message other than that. One message throughout the whole word of God. Do we study the word in a synthetical way? Do we have a synthetical view of the word of God? How things fit in the overall scheme of God's plan? What has he written? the telescope before the microscope. It's difficult to tell what a segment of, or a a portion of scripture is actually saying if we don't see how it fits into the whole. And so it's important to see how it fits into the whole. The section, the paragraph into the into the chapter and the chapter into the book and the book into the whole of the Word of God. It's important to do that and to be able to convey that to other men. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. We have a great responsibility, not just men, but women too. In fact, I'm sorry to say that there are many women that are far better Bible students than there are men. Shame on us, men. Shame on us. The Word of God. This is the living Word of God. We'll have it forever at the judgment seat of Christ, all of our lives will be measured against what? This standard, this is the ruler, the standard by which our lives will be measured. We ought to know it as best we can, it's the key. Then there is the issue of teaching teaching for service, teaching for service. In the fourth chapter of the the book of Ephesians, for instance, we have the Lord Jesus Christ giving gifts to the church. These gifts are men, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And they're given as gifts to the body so that they might what? edify and build up the church. The whole purpose for all of us is to move among the believers in such a fashion that we're edifying and building them up so that they in fact find their place in the body of Christ and use their gift in turn each one here, each one of you that that is part of this assembly is a needed element in this assembly. You have a specific purpose, you may not think so. You have a specific gift, every single one of you, every single believer, every single one of us has a gift and a purpose in having that gift, to utilize it for the upbuilding of the church, for the upbuilding of the, of the local body, service. And so we ought to encourage each other. We ought to give opportunity. The elders, of course, are and hopefully will continue to look where there is gift, to permit that to, to um, and be utilized. Gift. First Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, I think are the two main passages where we're given the gifts, where identification of gifts and so on. What is a gift? Well, we had a couple of, uh, or a young couple here that were playing the, the guitar. You know, I tried to play guitar about 102 years ago, I think it was. What a cacophony of noise. <laughs> Anyway, no talent there. They're talented, but that's not the gift, is it? The gift is something that no unbeliever can have. No unsaved person can have. Only a saved person can have a gift, a spiritual gift. Now, they have a talent, but they're using it in a way of ministering, right? Right? So they're utilizing their gift, but they're utilizing their talent in the exercise of the gift. Does that make sense, or am I twisting things in a fashion that no one understands here? Do you see it? It isn't a talent is something that is shared or can be shared by an unbeliever, but a gift is specifically for those that are believers. Each of you have a gift. The head. Uh, of the church, the head of the body is in heaven, but the body, mystical body, not the actual body of the Lord is here on earth. That's the church made up of parts. There's a liver there and a kidney and a spleen and a backbone and so on and so forth. Now, I don't know which one you are, but you are one of those and one of the other elements of a body. All of those come together to have the body function as it should. If things aren't functioning as they should, and you find out as you get older that uh, things aren't functioning as they should, there are elements in the body. You know, we, uh, old people they get together and uh, they, you know, years ago we used to go to houses and. Uh, there'd be someone playing the piano and such, you know, and they'd be singing and so on and so forth. Now, old people get together and they kind of uh, have a litany of of things regarding their organs. They have an organ recital, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that's a problem. So anyway, gift. Each one of you, each one of us is dependent on the others in the body, each with a gift, each to exercise that gift for the welfare and the well-being of the body. And so we need to teach that. That's the whole point. Teach that. Bring that into, into effect. It isn't simply, you know, oftentimes we put the, the, the light on public ministry, uh, preaching. Well, that's it. You know, every man is up on the platform able to preach. Well, that's, uh, that's rather an odd body if all we have are just a bunch of mouths, right? Out there. So that doesn't, that doesn't work. Uh, the elders ought to be viewing, looking to see the young men that stand up at the Lord's Supper and have a have an element, a seed of public ministry. Some don't. They may give a wonderful prayer and, and, and uh, a beautiful portion out of scripture, but they're just not don't have that seed of, of, uh, of public ministry. We ought to be careful that who we put, it, it, It isn't one-man ministry up here, but it's not all-man ministry either. And what we're doing is, if we do that, is in fact um, thwarting the gift that they may well have, the exercise of that gift in the assembly. And so it's important, important to service, ministry of edifying the body of Christ. But ultimately, to teach to know Christ, to know God. This is life eternal, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus. Christ, whom thou hast sent. The Lord spoke those words in that, what, 17th chapter of the Gospel according to John, addressing them to the Father. This is life eternal, that they may know thee. All of the eternity will, be, will revolve around the knowledge of the person of Christ and the Godhead. Paul could say, I count all things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And then he went on to say that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. You know that we are uniquely born to know God. God wants us to know him. In Genesis he said, let us make man in our own image and likeness. Image is representation. Likeness is similitude, to be like him. What is he saying? Later on he breathed life into the nostril of Adam and Adam had life. What kind of life, just physical? No, but spiritual as well. The conduit, the spirit, through which we can communicate with God, the likeness, we are made just like God. Now let me step back a little bit here. Not bodily, of course, and not certainly in uh, the divine attributes and such, but we're made just as he is. God is a personal God composed of what? In the Trinity, of three persons. A person, intellect, emotions, or feelings, and a will. A dog doesn't have that. A bird doesn't have that. Only two groups have that. The celestial beings and the terrestrial beings, the human beings. And God is a person so that he can communicate with us. He wants us to know him. I can know you, and you can know me because we're on the same wavelength. Persons, we have personhood. I have a dog, I know him, but he doesn't know me too well. I mean, I, I know what he does and doesn't do, but I, I, there's, there's no thought, there's no real communion there. But we have a communion one with the other. And we can develop that to know each other be- better. Couples come together and sit around the, the, the supper uh, in the evening, uh, they're, uh, they're invited, well we just invited you over so that we could get to what? know you better. And so it's knowing God, that's the whole issue. I think that we need to understand that this whole life of a believer is a personal life with Christ. That we have a relationship with him and that relationship isn't just simply salvation. That relationship is an ongoing thing. A husband with his wife. Uh, the parents with their children, the relationships that are built there. But we have the purpose of knowing God, made that way from the beginning, and it'll continue on into all of eternity. We're time beings, and so God has set up in eternity, not time, but ages. Ages in which he s- conveys Him something of himself to us. And for all all the ages that we could ever think of, God will convey something new of himself. One age will bring out something of Christ and we'll ponder that and delight in it and the age will close and a new one will open and there will be something new of Christ and for all of eternity without reservation and end, there'll be something new of Christ given to us fresh, and we'll never come to a point where we'll know all there is to know about him, then we would be God. Think of that. And we have the great privilege of knowing God now. And though we might know, not know all that we can about him, we ought to know as much as we can about him experientially here and now. Well, we're almost out of time. Finally, that last aspect is uh, really work to stimulate to holiness, making disciples, men and women that are holy before the Lord. We're not given the identification of what a disciple is in this particular portion. Uh, And really, I... I'm at a loss for words to be able to describe or define discipleship, to define what a disciple is. I find in the Word of God that there are certain words or certain concepts that, that give indication or show marks of discipleship, but I can't find a real definition that would be worthy. A disciple is a follower, a disciple is a, uh, a pupil, a disciple, uh, you know those sort of things, yes, but what are some of the marks? Well, the marks are that they, that a disciple loves Christ supremely. Christ is preeminent, not just simply important, not prominent, but preeminent in the life. Nothing else counts. He's preeminent, the Ephesians left their first love. Their first love, the Lord Jesus Christ, they left him. Is to be preeminent. The disciples also, or, or disciple also rests in the sacrifice um, completely, in the sacrifice of Christ. I wish we had time to expand on this particular portion. I don't know whether you ever come to a point of doubting your salvation in some degree. But it seems that men and women, as I particularly read through some of the uh, the autobiographies of, of saintly men and women, that there comes doubt somewhere in their life. The closer they get, it seems, to the Lord, they see themselves in their sin and their sinfulness, and they they wonder how God could love them. And they finally, of course, most of them overcome that particular, and that's the whole concept. It isn't based on how I keep myself. I, I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. Christ, through his precious blood, saves us, and he keeps us, and he keeps us. And so there's the issue of rest, in his sacrifice completely. Obedience, following him in obedience. Minda and I were invited by uh, uh, some saints here uh, a few weeks back to go to a, what what would you call that, a smorgasbord? That's the old buffet. That's uh, in Brea, out here, uh, a Japanese um, buffet. They virtually have anything and everything that your heart might desire if you're a foodie. Yeah. I mean, from, uh, from sushi to cooked meals, you know, cooked things. <laughs> Great. You know, and that's how we would like to approach God's will. God says, I, will, I want you to do this. Here's the commandment. Here's something that I want you to do. And you say, well, Lord, that's, you know, that's kind of like that um, that jellyfish eel over there. I'm really not into that. Uh, we like the tasty things, to be obedient to the tasty things, to the nice things, the palatable things. God says, obedience, period. When I say it, obey it. That it's not a buffet. We don't have the liberty to choose what we're going to obey and what we're not going to obey. A disciple obeys the Lord. And finally, of course, it's giving evidence of that. Let me take uh, just a minute. I have a minute here, but probably take a minute and a half. Then. Luke chapter 14, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 14 very quickly. Luke chapter 14, the Lord himself speaking here and he sets forth uh, a threefold exclusion from uh, being a disciple. He clearly says you cannot be a disciple if, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and ch- children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. What is the Lord saying here? Well, just go ahead and hate your mother and father, your brothers, sisters, and so on and so forth. No, what he's saying is, again, if I'm not preeminent, if I'm not first in your life, There's a problem. And your love, which is natural towards your wife or or husband or or children or or brothers and sisters, or even to yourself, and never in Scripture is there a commandment that that says uh, love yourself. It's a given, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. So we're kind of interested in numero uno here, right? Isn't that it? We are. And so God, so he says, even yourself. There has to be a distinction. So that love for a family is to be distanced from the love of Christ. Christ is to be first. There are families that have left assemblies because somebody didn't like this or little Joey didn't have enough toys or some other thing. And they didn't follow Christ, they followed the family. They went to a place, no breaking of bread, went to a place when necessarily perhaps the teaching wasn't uh, what it ought to be because of love of family. We need to be careful. Christ is first. And so that's what the Lord is saying here. You cannot be my disciple if I'm not first. You cannot be my disciple, verse 27, and whosoever does not bear his cross and comes after me cannot be my disciple. You cannot be a disciple if you don't bear your cross. Not Christ's cross, but your cross. Avoiding the cross. What is the cross for us? in relationship to ourselves. The sixth chapter of of Romans, I think, gives us a clear picture of that. The old man has been crucified, he's dead. You see, the, the cross is a symbol of death. My worst enemy is not the world, it's not Satan. My worst enemy is me. Self, the old nature, and that's been crucified on the cross. That's what we're told. Self is dead. Also in that sixth chapter, it said that we're dead to sin. Sin, headers, and chains. We couldn't get out of it. The work of the cross broke all that away. The blood of Christ broke that all away and we go ahead and put ourselves right back into those chains. And finally in that chapter it says, reckon yourself to be dead to sin. Make a point of recognizing that in your life. Reckon it to be so, dead to sin. In relationship to the world, I am dead to the world and the world is dead to me. That's what the cross signifies. Association with the person, identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that there are some young people here, perhaps us oldsters won't be facing it, but I think that there will be some young people that are here that will find that there will be persecution in this country for holding to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for identifying themselves with the person of Christ. We're seeing the throes of that going on right now. And unless the Lord returns, if he tarries, I think some will be facing pressure, the pressures of persecution for standing for Christ. The cross, identification with the person of Christ. And then just very quickly, these last few verses. Uh, verse 28, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and, and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish all who see it Begin to, mock him, begin to mock him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or well, what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation to make conditions of peace. So likewise, Whosoever of you does not forsake all that he can, uh, all that he has, cannot be my disciples. What is the Lord saying here? It seems that there is a stretch here between the the picture of the the builder and the the warrior and what the Lord is stating in this this, uh, last verse that that we read. So likewise, like what? Whosoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciples. What is the Lord saying? This is quandary for me for a long, long time. What is the Lord saying? Is he saying, look, okay, to be a, a, a real disciple of me, you get rid of your house, your car, the money for the college education? What is he saying? Is he saying any of that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Correlating it to the two things that he just stated. You look at all the materials that you have. Do you have enough to finish? You look at the enemy before you. Do you have an army large enough to win? He's saying you don't. What he's saying here is in a spiritual sense What is it that you have for me to build the kingdom? What is it that you have to to war for me, to go into battle for me? What is it that you have? Well, Lord, I have, you know, a little knowledge of the word of God. And I have brethren that pray for me. And... I travel around a little bit and, you know, convey the word to others. The Lord says, well, okay, all of those things are good. Is that enough? None of that is enough, he says. So likewise, whosoever of of you does not forsake all that he has to build for me or to war for me, cannot be my disciple. Put it away. It's not enough. Only Christ can give you the ammunition, the army. Only Christ can give you the building blocks necessary to build for the kingdom. Dependence upon him as we follow him, not upon ourselves. The problem with us oftentimes is that we've become lackadaisical in the battle and rather lazy in the building because we're dependent upon ourselves and what we've stowed away. But it's all by the work of the Spirit of God, dear saints. By the Spirit of God, go ye and make disciples and become one yourself. Wonderful thoughts. wonderful uh, requirements set before us and I trust that we will implement them to a greater degree in our lives. I know this convicts me more than perhaps any other here. Christ is central. Are we disi- disciples? Are we depending on him? Is he our all in all? If not, may he be so. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before thee in the precious and lovely name of the Lord Jesus. We thank thee, O oh blessed Father, for thy lovely Son, the one who made himself of no reputation, came here and took upon himself this human flesh, went to the cross of Calvary, and gave himself their Father, in our stead. Oh, Father, we pray that we might learn more of him, that we, like that Shulamite maiden, might recognize him and say, he is altogether lovely. Father, this thing called Christianity is not simply a faith that is not much different than others, but it's a relationship with thee through thy precious Son, by thy Spirit, O oh blessed God, make thy Son all that he is to thee for us. We ask it in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.